This is Ergasia Digest, a weekly roundup of news from the world of faith, work, economics and theology, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello and welcome to Ergasia Digest number four, a regular roundup of news from the world of work, faith, theology and economics. My name is Brendan Byrne and I have the pleasure of being your host. It's a real pleasure to present the first episode of Ergasia Digest for 2018. Ergasia Digest acts as a supplement to regular episodes of Ergasia by highlighting news about work and economics and posing questions that tie these news items to considerations of faith and theology. It will not necessarily be the purpose of Ergasia Digest to suggest or supply answers to the questions which then arise, merely to provide food for thought for listeners' own reflection. And so, here is the news. Beginning in the United States, and the Economic Policy Institute reports that a two-year study has shown that the creation of distribution centres for retailing giant Amazon does not necessarily lead to broad-based growth in employment, despite the millions of dollars of taxpayers' money which Amazon receives in tax credits, exemptions and infrastructure support. The research indicates that while the construction of Amazon distribution centres does increase growth in general warehousing jobs, this growth is offset by job losses elsewhere in the economy or by the fact that the growth in Amazon-related jobs is so small as to not impact employment rates in any statistically significant way. The report's authors conclude that despite the amounts of money and other forms of support Amazon receives from government, the return on investment is negligible or even zero. The authors conclude that instead of wasting public money on ineffective employment strategies like this, government would be better served boosting investment in areas such as early childhood education and community infrastructure, both of which have been shown to spur long-term economic improvement and with it employment opportunity. Moving to Europe, and BBC Capital reports that research conducted in Scotland and Denmark has provided insights into how workplace organisation entrenches socially constructed sexism, leading to lower wage outcomes and career opportunities for women, despite their generally superior educational achievements in school and university. The research focused on call centres in both countries, and after extensive interviews with managers and employees, and an examination of workplace cultures and practices, concluded that call centres are based on and perpetuate socially embedded notions of sexism. The researchers reached this conclusion after noting that call centres are highly regulated work environments in which staff are both required to comply with tightly scripted responses to customer interactions and are subjected to pervasive monitoring 
and intervention by management. This high degree of regimentation mimics conditions uncovered by research into early childhood development and schooling, in which girls are conditioned to compliance by being both rewarded for obeying the rules and being more heavily sanctioned than boys when violations occur. This linkage helps explain why more than 70% of call centre employees are women, because social conditioning makes the call centre environment familiar to women, and because gender stereotype notions of women's natural capacities make them attractive options for managers. However, this hurts women in the longer term, and the low wages and general powerlessness of call centre roles have led to some commentators labelling them female ghettos. Meanwhile, in Australia, the conversation reports that recent claims by the Federal Treasurer Scott Morrison that giving tax breaks to corporations will ultimately lead to wage increases for employees is not actually supported by evidence from the available research. This comes in the wake of recent observations by the Governor of the Reserve Bank that wages growth in Australia is at its lowest level since the mid-1960s, as well as data from company profits showing that in recent years the owners of capital have gradually increased their share of aggregate income while the share going to employees has steadily declined. The report suggests that instead of either preferentially taxing small business in the hope that doing so will boost innovation-driven profits or providing large corporations with across-the-board tax cuts, Governments should invest in direct policies that have been shown to boost employment, economic growth and productivity. Such policies include targeted infrastructure, education and training initiatives. In Britain, The Guardian reports that data recently released by the Office of National Statistics gives credence to concerns that the retailing sector is under sustained pressure from a combination of low wages, high levels of personal debt and a sustained change in consumer shopping habits toward internet purchasing. The release of this data follows a string of highly publicised collapses involving formerly iconic retail chains and ongoing reports that the once dominant toy retailer Toys R Us is struggling to stave off bankruptcy. The impact of these changes go beyond store closures and job losses. Communities in urban and rural locations are being adversely affected by the demise of both a source of local income and a generator of local economic activity. On the other hand, some formerly non-high street brands like premium car manufacturers and IT businesses are moving into spaces being abandoned by traditional retailers. Whatever the ultimate outcome of these trends, analysts agree that significant capital investment will be required to make the adjustment, and that in many cases defunct retailing spaces will need to be converted into living quarters to help address Britain's crippling housing shortage. Finally, and returning to the United States, the Economic Policy Institute has published a report claiming that the Trump administration's much-vaunted infrastructure initiative is in reality a house of cards that will produce little by way of tangible benefits 
and which will in fact be paid for by making cuts to programs designed to aid low-income working families. The report cites the fact that more than two-thirds of the initiative is dependent on state and local governments footing the bill for the program, despite the fact that they already bear the brunt of most infrastructure spending in the United States. As a consequence, state and local authorities will be forced to enter into so-called public-private partnerships with the private sector, resulting in increased taxes, tolls and other fees, as well as private sector monopoly outcomes, as corporations seek a return on their investment. For its part, the federal government seems likely to pay for its share of the infrastructure initiative by slashing funding for Medicare, Medicaid and aid programs like the Supplemental Nutritional Aid Program, all of which disproportionately adversely impacts on the poor. What are the theological implications of this week's economic news? Christ taught that whatsoever we do to the least among us, so we also do to Christ. In so doing, Christians are called to take seriously the relational impacts of not just their acts and omissions, but also of their policy prescriptions and ideological worldviews. When ideological articles of faith become received wisdoms, through which government and society operates, despite the absence of any evidence in favour of that worldview, or indeed in spite of the existence of evidence to the contrary, then we are called to account by Christ's teaching about the impact of our blindness on others. Thus, when governments pursue economic, industrial and social policies in adherence to ideological blindness, it falls to the Christians within governing circles to stand against the flow of this blindness and point out the impacts which it has on the poor, the vulnerable and the marginalised. This requirement places a great demand on the shoulders of Christians to risk the wrath of the beneficiaries of the status quo as well as their own privileged status within that status quo for the sake of those who can never make any kind of return in investment. In other words, to forego the politics of pragmatism or consensus in order to articulate a dissent that speaks on behalf of the voiceless, all to the potential cost of their own comfort and security. This is a daunting responsibility, but if Christians understand economy in its original theological sense, then they will understand that economy is always ultimately about relationship and specifically about the relationship of power to the powerless and of power's responsibility to forego its capacity to dominate and control for the sake of the dignity all humans share through our creation in the likeness and image of God. And with that in mind, we come to the end of Ergasia Digest number four. I hope to have the pleasure of your company in future. For more information, visit the website at www.
www.ergasia.podbean.com. I'm your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia Digest, a weekly roundup of news from the world of faith, work, economics, and theology. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com. Thank you.